About 15 years ago, right after Kelly and I got married, we started attending church together. And she and I were actually attending a social event with some family friends, and I vividly remember a conversation from that event. And I vividly remember it because it was with someone at the time who was close to our family and had recently professed faith in Christ, which was a bit of a shock to many of us in my family. Uh, And they started attending a church. But what stands out in my memory even more prominently than their supposed declaration of faith was that they said something next that just stuck in my brain. They said something like this, we love our church. We only go through the New Testament though on Sundays because all the Old Testament is about is legalism and laws, trying to earn your salvation. The New Testament is about grace and that's all we want to talk about is grace. I'm guessing that many of you in this room have heard this before. Maybe you've even thought the same thing. Maybe you've even spoken the same thing. Because this is very prominent in evangelicalism. New Testament equals good. Old Testament equals bad. But even back almost two decades ago, long before I ever really started to truly study the Bible, something didn't sit right with me with this understanding. It didn't make sense to me that God would have passed on 39 of the 66 books of the Bible just to tell us to not use it. And as we've gone through Deuteronomy, we've already begun to see how much of Deuteronomy is used in the New Testament, especially by Jesus himself, and how we must know the Old Testament to understand the New. Has that started to dawn on you guys a little bit? Yeah? The simplest way to understand this is to ask the question, what was the Scripture? What was the Bible used by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter, and by the rest of their disciples? You see, they wrote the New Testament. The New Testament wasn't in existence. They used the Old Testament as their scriptures as New Covenant Christians. And to which scripture was Paul referring when he wrote to Timothy saying this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What was he referring to? He was referring to the Old Testament. Christianity was and is based on the Old Testament as read through the filter and teaching of Jesus. So don't worry, we're not going to become a church that says, you have to practice the Torah, right? That's not who we are. But at the same time, we don't discount the Old Testament and we look at it through the lens of Jesus' teachings and through the Holy Spirit to understand how it is profitable for us to teach us and equip us. So as Christians, we don't get rid of the Old Testament. We understand its purpose through Jesus. And this is of vital importance when you're reading the section of Scripture that we are in because we are in detailed stipulations. We are in the detailed laws that last from Deuteronomy 12 to 26. And I doubt many of you last night were looking at the Scripture for this morning going, Oh baby, cities of refuge, moving landmarks, and witnesses. This is going to be a good morning. I'm going to walk out of church with that warm, fuzzy feeling, encouraged, ready to not move my neighbor's fence. That's exactly what you guys came to church for this morning, right? Well, we just finished the section on leadership of God's people and the duty of the leaders to lead the people in the ways of God. And now we're stepping into what they're supposed to lead the people in. And what I believe we will find in the purpose of these laws and how they contribute to the people of God is this. They will help us understand the just witness of God's covenant people. The just witness of God's covenant people. 
the background that we need to be reminded of is that God's people are not just saved people. They're proclaiming people. They're evangelizing people. And not just the three-minute tract evangelism that you do on a street, but evangelizing with your very life, with the worship that occurs 24-7, 365, because you are a redeemed believer, a part of His new humanity. So we'll see that the laws are good for the just witness of God's covenant people. And so our first point this morning is just that. The purpose of God's people was and is to proclaim His character, God's character. From the beginning of the story of God's people, we have been intended to proclaim His majesty and royal rule by our obedience according to His character and law. As God sovereignly chose His people throughout history, we see this repeated over and over again. Many of these verses, for those of you who've been here through Isaiah and Matthew, these are going to be repetitive, but repetition is good. It's part of what Paul tells Timothy the job of a pastor is, is to repeat and to remind. And so when we look at how God chose His people and what they were supposed to do, we can start with Abraham, for example, and look at Genesis 18-19. This is a verse that you guys must memorize, you must internalize. This is right before Sodom and Gomorrah and the Lord and two of His angels are standing there. The Lord in incarnate fashion, uh, the angel of the Lord, are standing there in front of Sodom and Gomorrah asking whether or not they're going to tell Abraham what they're about to do. And they say this, For I have chosen him, God says, I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now you guys realize that as New Testament believers, as New Covenant people, we are the offspring of Abraham. And so this idea of righteousness and justice, does anybody remember what the Hebrew words are? Tzedakah v'mishpat. Say it with me. Tzedakah v'mishpat. This is shorthand through Scripture for the overall rule of God, the mission of God, that the world should exist in the fullness of God's plan. It should exist in tzedakah v'mishpat, righteousness and justice, shalom, peace, wholeness, the fullness of restoration. And this is why you see God and His rule described this way throughout the Old Testament. Take a look, for example, in Psalm 33.5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The steadfast love of God is found in His righteousness and justice as it's exhibited in the world. Our reading from this morning in Psalm 9 speaks of the foundation of His rule. It says, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice. And He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Tzedakah v'mishpah. It's shorthand all throughout the Old Testament. And so God, the Father, who the Bible says is Spirit, uses His people, the incarnate means in the world, to actively and physically proclaim His character amongst the nations who have rebelled against Him and dismissed His rule. The most perfect incarnate manifestation of God is obviously Himself in the form of Jesus Christ, But remember, Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit and He said to us, as I am in the world, so will you be. As the Father has loved me, you will love each other. We are to be that reflection. And having a cheap grace gospel where we pray a prayer, get saved, and wait for heaven is an absolute perversion of the truth of who God's people are supposed to be. 
Remember Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. It says this, See, I have taught you statutes and rules. Moses was telling the people this. As the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. Keep the law and do them. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? I don't know if you guys follow the news, but a woman named Rachel Held Evans just died recently. She was a big writer uh, in the Christian world. She wrote a book a few years ago about a woman that would keep the law literally of the Old Testament. She lived in a tent when she went through her menstruation. She sat in the tent as it was told to do in the Old Testament. And she was basically writing a book making fun of the Old Testament and saying that we as Christians need to get rid of the Old Testament and pay attention to God's mercy and grace in the New Testament. She just died of pneumonia at like 37. A really bad, sad deal, left behind two kids. And it's amazing to watch the Christian community react to her. A lot of people are uh, villainizing her and saying she's terrible. A lot of people are saying she was a hero of Christianity. And the reality is, is one of the saddest things about her life is that one of the marks she left on Christianity was she basically countered this. She said that it's idiotic for Christians to follow the law of God. It's idiotic to follow the Old Testament. It's idiotic to do these things because that's not what Jesus intended. The reality is she was dead wrong. And unfortunately, Christians have grasped onto this and said, yeah, the Old Testament, let's kick it out. There's no point to it. Well, guys, the reality is, is yes, we're not going to literally have cities of refuge. But what is the principle behind the cities of refuge that Christians are still supposed to follow? We may not get in an argument with our neighbor about the fences and the boundaries of our property, but what is the principle underneath it that we are still supposed to follow? The reality is, is that Sedekava Mishpat does not get kicked out because some of these traditions seem odd to us. They are, in fact, the basis of the Christian life. Does that make sense? And so while we don't do these things at the surface level, as she was doing to, in essence, jest about the Old Testament, we do them at a level that shows the principal nature of God's character. As the people obey His rule over His kingdom, they will rightly proclaim who He is and show that He is a God different than the gods of the nations, the demonically backed idols of the nations. He is the one God who exists in perfect love, righteousness, and justice. And that is what we're going to see through these detailed laws that honestly, even as, my, as, a, as I myself did early in my Christianity, I read them and thought, what a bunch of baloney. Why do I have to read this? It is in these detailed laws and stipulations that the righteousness and justice comes out and a world-shifting understanding of how these ancient Near East people should live when compared to the pagan people around them. Take, for example, the first section of our reading today, which discusses what are called the cities of refuge. Just quickly compare verses 10 and verse 13. Verse 10 says, Lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance, and so the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Verse 13 says, Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may, dwell, uh, do, it may be well with you. We will look at the context of this in a moment, but at first glance, what are the people of Israel concerned with? 
making sure that the innocent are not punished and that the guilty should go or should not go unpunished. They're concerned with making sure that the innocent are not punished and that the guilty should not go unpunished. Justice and righteousness. And this is what Christians are about. This is why Christians fight for the unborn, the murder of innocent children. This is why Christians should be about getting criminals, uh, people that have been uh, shown to be criminals, out of prison if they're shown to be innocent. Uh, about once a month now, new DNA evidence comes out and people who've been in prison for decades get out because the DNA evidence proves that they were wrongly accused. Christians should be about that just as much as we're about saving the unborn. We are for innocence and we go against guilt. We are people of justice and righteousness. We don't pick and choose political things just because it's part of our party, if you're Democrat or Republican. We are about righteousness and justice across the board. Now, where does this idea come from? This idea of innocence and guilt, that the guilt, guilty should be punished, that the innocent should not be. Well, it comes directly from his own character. It comes from who God is. He is the source of all justice and righteousness. Remember again, one of the core verses I've shown you a lot is Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Remember this one. When he spoke of himself to Moses, he said this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. When there's lack of repentance, he declares them guilty and acts. When there is innocence or there is repentance, he will forgive and he will see you as innocent. This is not a bloodthirsty God. This is a righteous and just God that we serve. God's very character is righteousness and justice, and his people are called to reflect that in their daily lives. But innately, we re must remember that each of us as humans follow in the rebellion of our original mother and father, who decided to dismiss God's command. And so the organic brokenness of their sin is passed down to each of us as we learn and habituate rebellion against God in our lives. At the core of this sin is each person and our horrific selfishness. Our brains and our bodies are built and wired in a way in which we have a natural bent towards self-protection, greed, and wantonness because we do not trust God nor live within his reign and provision. And so we as humans naturally will act in ways that are against his rule of righteousness and justice and selflessness. And so when God chose for himself a people, he needed to instill in them his way of thinking, not allow them to go off of our own innate uh, bent. And he needed to begin to mold them towards righteousness and justice. And so some of the laws that we will cover that seem off to us are his moving of the people toward a better reflection of his character. Not a perfect reflection, mind you, but a better one, given where they were at the time. Why does God legislate slavery when slavery is an abomination according to his, his heart? Because he had a bar and he was legislating the people to get there eventually. Jesus came to set the captives free. God is the Exodus God. He does not condone slavery. He tried to minimize its evil effects in a people that probably couldn't get there on their own in one shot. 
And so there's a legislation, there's a pastoral strategy of moving them slowly but surely towards righteousness and justice. And so the reality is that the laws of the Old Testament have nothing to do with earning God's salvation as my friend from years ago thought. The people of Israel had already been graciously chosen and saved by God long before they were ever given the law. Not because of their works, but because of God's grace. The rules, the laws, were then given to help them fulfill their purpose and duty to reflect the righteous and just character of God. And that's the next point. God's rule, through His laws, is for the purpose of proclaiming His character. God's rule, through His laws, is for the purpose of proclaiming His character. In our text today, we will see three laws dealing with the cities of refuge, boundary markings, and witnesses and charges of guilt. All of these were for the purpose of proclaiming his character. And we might think, boundary markers? Seriously? How does that proclaim the character of God? Well, we'll see in a minute. And so let's begin by reading there in Deuteronomy 19. And we're just going to read the first couple of verses. I'll let you finish writing down that slide. Deuteronomy 19, 1-3. Let's take a look. When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall measure the distances and divide into three parts the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession so that any manslayer can flee to them. We talked a small amount about cities of refuge in Deuteronomy 4.41, and we looked at the law of God speaking to God's merciful side, that he would even provide these. But Moses is saying that when the people go across the Jordan and begin to occupy the land, that three more cities of refuge needed to be established. The word possess here, when they possess the land, in the Hebrew it could also be translated occupy, that they were to be occupiers. It's a military occupation. God's army was occupying the pagan land for the purpose of proclaiming his glory. You remember Genesis 1? What was the purpose? To subdue the earth. It was to conquer. You see, our job as the Lord's army, right? We may never, you know, shoot. What, what is the song? I may never march in the, right? We may never march in the infantry, shoot the artillery, do all those things, but we are an army meant to conquer in the name of Jesus, to proclaim his character in the face of all the world's other idols and gods. And so this occupation was for his glory. And this law sets up a means of action toward the innocent and the guilty. Across Israel, they had six cities. And all these cities were equidistant throughout the land, not just in general geography, but based on the roads at the time. That's what the distance is there uh, in verse 3. You shall measure the distances. That word in the Hebrew is derek, which means paths or roads. And God wanted them, these cities to be placed in a way so that they were not too far from any one spot so that the man who accidentally killed another person could flee there before they were overtaken by the person who wanted vengeance that this calls the avenger of blood. 
Now let's look at what these cities were for. Take a look at verse 4 there. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head of the axe slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. Through Moses, God makes a very important distinction here. He sets up something that we still use in our judicial system in 2019. That's how amazing this is. He sets up the difference between premeditated homicide and accidental homicide. We can't, as a society, improve on God's wisdom. And he gives an example. Two guys are out in the wilderness chopping down firewood. The axe head flies off, cracks one of the two in the noggin, and he falls down dead. Right? Major bummer. Now, we must remember that mankind was largely tribal and nomadic at this point in history, and so part of the legal system wasn't, let's get the guy, take him in in the police car, put him in front of the judge. These were tribes and nomads. And so the way that you kept any kind of legal organization was you gave the right of uh, exacting judgment to a family member, the kinsman, redeemer, the avenger of blood. The Hebrew word is goel. It is translated in the book of Ruth as kinsman redeemer, speaking of Boaz. You guys remember that story? Boaz in that story is the, doing the job of the goel to be the kinsman redeemer, to, re, uh, to redeem his distant relative Ruth from poverty and indentured servitude. Now this could be one's child, one's brother, a father's brother, or the father's brother's children. It's a relative that would do this work. But here the word goel is used to describe the job of the kinsman to go and kill the murderer of a family member, to exact revenge. It is called the avenger of blood in this case. And as with any system of earthly authority, it only had weight if it was based off of God's heart and ultimate sovereignty. You see, for example, the avenger of blood really only has power to carry out judgment if it's done within the character of Yahweh. Notice what Psalm 9 from this morning calls God. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Authority comes from God, and it's only rightful authority and authority to be followed if it's within his character. We forget this when we have political heroes that we say, oh, I'm going to follow this guy. Their authority only comes as they're acting within God's character. You don't give them a pass for acting outside God's character. As leaders of this church, our only authority in your lives is as if we act in God's character. When we step out of that, you're to hold us accountable. Right? That's what we do. And in this legal climate of the day, it was not uncommon for someone to exact revenge on you and on everyone else in your tribe. It was kind of like the mafia all over the place. You kill somebody from my tribe, I kill somebody from your tribe, plus one. Right? And that's how everybody kind of kept each other in check was this great fear. And so these cities of refuge were put in place as a way to hold off the exaction of revenge 
to perform a proper investigation and see what happened. And if the person was found to have committed accidental murder, there would be the natural consequences of isolation and exile in the city of refuge, but they would overall be innocent of the greater charge of hateful or premeditated murder, and their life would be spared. In the eyes of God, interestingly enough, these people were innocent of blood. Think about that for a second, about how you picture God. Parents, think about this for us as we discipline and train our children. Far too often in my life as a parent, I have disciplined my children as if they didn't make a mistake, but purposefully did something wrong. Any other parents do that? You know they made a mistake, but it is so annoying to you as a parent that you're like, that is it, the wrath has come, right? And all of a sudden, these poor kids who made a mistake are being treated as guilty rather than an innocent party that needs to be maybe isolated for a minute to think about what happened. The reality is, is we can show God to be this wrathful, vengeful God when in fact that's not at all his character. He knows we make mistakes. Dear Christian, does this help you? Does this help you realize that God is not a perfectionist calling you to the carpet every time you make a little bit of a fumble? God loves you. He recognizes mistakes. He also knows quite clearly when your heart is premeditating that sin that you do. And he will hold you to that charge. But the reality is, is that he's a good God who gives room. I mean, can you talk about a bigger mistake to make than accidentally killing your friend? But yet God is gracious even in the midst of this. Dear brothers and sisters, does this sound like a bloodthirsty God wanting his revenge for our mistakes? Not at all. But the things that are truly guilty about us, the fact that we've rebelled against a holy God, he will rightfully deal with. But the next section speaks of this investigation occurring. And maybe the person is found to have committed hate-filled, premeditated murder. Take a look there at verse 11. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there and hand him over to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. In this case, if the person is found to have hated his brother prior to the murder, as verse 7 discusses, then he is to be taken out and handed to the avenger of blood so that justice can come, so that he can perform his duty of just judgment. And God viewed this as so much of an atrocity that an innocent person would be killed through hateful premeditated murder that he says, your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. Man, our society is so screwed up. We fight for the guilty parties and we kill the innocent parties. That's how flipped over our world is. We go to bat for the people that are wrong. And yet, the innocent we care very little about. The people of God were to be set apart to reflect the character of God. Merciful to the innocent, just in judgment towards the guilty. Holy. This is so important because in many other people groups, archaeology tells us that this is not 
how the gods of the other peoples operated. In fact, in most religions across the world, what you would find is that the temple was to be a place of refuge. People who were criminals could go there and they could get refuge in the temple. Uh, The Greeks, for example, uh, there are Greek historians that write about how the temples were full of criminals who everyone knew was guilty but couldn't be touched. The gods of these pagan nations didn't discriminate between innocent and guilty, and they simply just cared for whoever was there in their temple. That's horrific. And if you think about it, that's actually how the church has started to become what the church has started to become. We have pedophiles and sexual molesters in the church, and we do nothing about it. We don't call the police. We don't deal with the abuse. Recently, the Southern Baptist Convention just had tons of accusations about abuse cases that weren't dealt with because the church wanted to take care of it inside. Guys, I can tell you right now, every time we hear of anything, we follow the rules of confidentiality according to the state that we call and we report child abuse. We call and we report abuse of vulnerable adults. We deal with suicide ideation. We deal with the things we're supposed to do. We don't keep it in-house so that the guilty are covered. This is the reality. God's people, by the way they act, by the way they deal with things, either ruin their witness or lift it up. Does the Southern Baptist Convention have great witness across the United States right now? No, because they're not acting in Sedekava Mishpat, righteousness and justice. And I pray that the brothers and sisters in that denomination will continue to do what they're doing, which is to deal with it well. They're starting to enact a lot of really great things. Now, Yahweh, through his people, sets himself apart among the nations as a God of righteousness and justice. Even look at verse 14 there in Deuteronomy. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. This one verse law is seemingly stuck in randomly, but it makes sense coming after the designation of cities of refuge because it is dealing with land laws. And it says, don't subversively move the boundary markers of land given to a tribe or an individual. Now, why was this a big deal? Well, the less land a person had, the less likely they would be able to make a living and have provision of food. In essence, this law is saying, don't be greedy in material gain, because in doing so, you will cast the other person into poverty. It reflects a God who is generous in provision and wants equality in provision among his creation. Now, I've preached on this before and I've had very conservative people come up to me. And guys, just so you know, I'm independent, okay? Just to clear it all up, I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat. I go with whichever person is going to follow the Bible, which is usually none of them, (laughs) unfortunately, okay? And the reality is, is that uh, what, what's going on here is that uh, you know conservatives would come up to me and they'd say, oh, Hans, you must be a socialist. You talk about equality of provision. No, not at all. I'm a capitalist in a sense that I think people should work hard and they should earn a living. What I am against, though, is the fact that as Americans, what we do is we hoard everything so that the rest of the world gets very little. This is a problem. Maybe there's a line somewhere in the middle where we don't have to hoard everything We could kick it back a couple of notches and make sure that the poverty people in poverty of the rest of the world are actually taken care of. By the way we live our life, by what we purchase and how we purchase it, 
We are either acting in justice and righteousness, or we're not. Now, our world is so screwed up, whether you buy one thing at Walmart or not is not going to change the overall system of the economy. But if Christians the world over thought through this and made even slight changes to their purchasing habits, we would be a people that would understand why God is saying, hey, don't hoard all the land so that others have very little. As Americans, I think we can learn from this in a huge way. We must ask the question as to whether or not our wealth results in someone else's poverty. For us to exist in plenty, supply and demand laws require that others exist in poverty. As God's people, I think we need to consider this. It's funny, whenever I watch parents who are trying to teach their children how to share and then run to the store on Black Friday and hoard TVs. It's just odd, isn't it? Don't you think that's a little bit odd? To not consider this would be, fall in, to, to, would be to fall in league with the Israelites under God's judgment. Let's look at how God views this in Isaiah 5.8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. This is a metaphor for the idea of people who are going, I want more, I want more, I want more. This is not God's heart. God harshly criticizes any group that places greed and materialism over the rights of other human beings. And we as Christians would be wise to understand this. Well, lastly, the last section of chapter 19, we see Moses telling the people the laws surrounding witnesses. Because as soon as laws are put in place, human nature dictates that they will be misused to our own advantage as one human wrongly and falsely charges another human with breaking the law wrongly and falsely charges another human with sin. Let's take a look there at verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse the person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord before the priests and the judges who were in office in those days, before the leaders. The judges, shall, the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. Do you think there was a lot of false accusation with that law in place? Mm-mm. Do you think there was a lot of sensitivity? Oh man, that, that just hurt my feelings. I'm going to go accuse them. No. You to really check yourself to see if the person had actually sinned, had actually broken the law. So, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. God devises a plan here that goes against our selfish, selfish nature and assures that we are not lawgivers unto ourselves. It was a direct polemic or argument against the law of the land of the day where any one person could take the law into their own hands and avenge a murder or move the boundary markers of another person's land. So we see, for example, in the longer statement of what the cities of refuge were to be in Numbers 35, that it was not a single person who made a judgment, but it was the whole covenant community of God's people that was to bear the responsibility of carrying out the just judgment of the rule of Yahweh. You see, the idea of congregationalism is not a polity that was made up by the Baptists. 
It was something that was there from the beginning of God's people. We say of our church that we are Jesus ruled. Say it with me. Jesus ruled. Say it with me. Jesus ruled. And then we are elder led. Say it with me. Elder led. And then we are congregationally responsible. Say it with me. Congregationally responsible. Jesus ruled, elder led, congregationally responsible. Jesus is our ruler and king. The elders lead in a way that tries to reflect his righteousness and justice. And the congregation is responsible for enacting the judgment whenever something is necessary to be judged. You can take a look in Numbers 35 uh, on your own time, but I'm going to just give you a, a short piece of Numbers 35 here, starting in verse 22. This is speaking of the cities of refuge, and that's the context of it. It says there, but if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge. I didn't add that word. That's the word. That's the translation of the Hebrew word. Then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. And the congregation, that should be bolded too, shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled. And he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he, the avenger of blood, shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. So the man would stay there in exile in the city of refuge. And you hoped, if you were the person who went to the city of refuge, that the dude walking around town with a long beard that looked like he was about to die was the high priest because then you'd get out of the city of refuge faster when he died. If you walked in and the high priest was like 20, you were like, man, I'm going to be here a while, right? That was the rule. That was the law. And it's the same idea of the congregation in the New Testament. The word edah in the Hebrew means assembly. The assembly, the congregation, shall be the ones that pass judgment. It is the same idea as congregation or church in the New Testament. Now, dear church, if these laws are simply about doing them to earn salvation and earn relationship with God, then by all means, we should cast them aside. Should we not? But that's not what they're for. The purpose of these laws was for creating a people that by obedience to God's rule would proclaim His righteousness and just character to a world that badly needs to know Him. Guys, how many people around you have a complete misunderstanding and mischaracterization of God? I am dumbfounded lately when I talk to people who proclaim to be Christians about who they think God is. It's so far off, it's not even funny. We have moved past illiteracy into plain old loss of brain. The reality is, is that the theological brain of the American public just doesn't exist anymore. It's not illiteracy, it's just gone. And so it is our job as the people of God not to just talk about who God is, but to show Him. And so while we are not going to have cities of refuge, nor are many of us going to have to worry about our livelihood if our neighbor builds his fence a couple inches over the property line, 
we are most definitely supposed to take the underlying principle of these laws and apply them through the lens of the gospel. How do we do that? Well, that's the final point I want to give you today. Through the gospel, we have been chosen for the purpose of proclaiming God's character. Through the gospel, we have been chosen for the purpose of proclaiming God's character. The first two points still stand for us as the church. It is by obeying God's law, we will show the world his righteousness and justice. It's not how we earn our salvation. If you walk away from this teaching today going, Hans said that we have to keep the law in order to earn salvation, then you have selective hearing and you need to go re-listen to the teaching. We do not earn his grace, otherwise it wouldn't be grace. We do not earn his love. What we do is because we've gotten his grace, because we've gotten his love, contra-conditionally to our sin, we respond in a way where we want to obey him to show who he is. And so through the gospel, we have been chosen for the purpose of proclaiming God's character. The bad news that the Bible gives us is that we are innately broken. We are rebellious to the divine order that God put in place, where we are supposed to serve him by reflecting his image to the creation around us. And we are supposed to be conquering the creation and occupying it in his name and rule. And instead, we are under the authority, or we as Christians were under the authority, of the worldly rulers and authorities from the spiritual realm. The world is under the domination and enslavement of the prince of the power of the air, of the realm of darkness, of the adversary of God. And to set us free, God the Father sent His Son, Jesus Christ, born in the flesh to proclaim His kingdom through both word and deed. Born in the flesh to die a death He did not deserve so that He could be the atoning sacrifice to pay the price for the sin of all mankind. Three days later, Jesus resurrected from the dead, proving not only that he is God, but also that the atoning sacrifice he gave was enough to break the power of sin and death and the powers of darkness. And in this death and resurrection, God made us, made you and me as believers in Christ, alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses and canceling the record of death that stood against us. Amen? This was only through Jesus Christ. And through this miraculous work, the Father proved victorious over the rulers and authorities of the spiritual realm that stand in opposition to him. And even more amazing is that through the blood of Christ, we have been made innocent in the eyes of God. Innocent. And in this life, we flee to our city of refuge the body of Christ, a city set on a hill, set apart as exiles for a time in this foreign world. We are called by Peter, sojourners and exiles. And one day we too will be fully set free from that exile because of the death of our high priest, Jesus Christ. When his reign rules the land, when he brings shalom fully in place upon his return, we will no longer be exiles. We will rule and reign with Him. In the meantime, Christ has ascended to the abode of the Father and has given us His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has joined us together with the Father and with one another. 
And in doing so, God has created a people chosen for a mission to declare his character to the world. The period of time in which the Holy Spirit of God is placed within God's people to teach us how to walk in the law of God has begun. We do not innately do the law of God, but the Holy Spirit reminds us, it teaches us, it calls us, it convicts us. The old covenant has grown obsolete and it is vanishing away, but what is being replaced, uh, what, is, what it is being replaced with is the movement of the Holy Spirit within us. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, many of the prophets of the Old Testament, they prophesied that the Holy Spirit would come and it would teach us the law of God in our hearts. New Testament writers, such as the writer of Hebrews, say that that has happened. It's started. It's not fully here yet. It's inaugurated. It's here, but not yet. And so it is the job of the people of God, the church, to teach the disciples of Jesus Christ how to obey his interpretation of God's law. Not to earn our salvation, but as a result of the gracious gift of salvation. And this is why Jesus commanded us in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the first part of what I said. He's conquered. He's ruling. Go, therefore, or as you go throughout your life is really the best interpretation, the best translation of that. As you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, one of the worst things to happen in Christendom is that we took this and we applied it only to missionaries who go into foreign fields. This is a statement to all disciples. And that's why it says, as you go, when you're standing in your house with your children practicing the great Shema, when you're at work and you really want to yell at your boss or yell at your employees, and yet you don't because you're acting in righteousness and justice as a proclamation of who the God you serve is. When you're in the car and you really want to practice that one phrase you know in sign language, but you choose not to because you're walking in righteousness and justice. When you feel like treating someone else badly that you meet a stranger, you don't because you're practicing obedience to the law of righteousness and justice. When you have a fight with your spouse and you want to simply dismiss your spouse, you don't because you practice the law of righteousness and justice that calls you to reconciliation. When you want to dismiss the person in the church body that you just can't really stand anymore, but the elders are telling you, you need to reconcile. You do so because you obey the law of God because it is the basic of your witness. You get my point? I could keep going for a while. You practice the law of righteousness and justice not because Hans tells you to, but because your king commands it. You have no other choice. It is a proper response to his gracious salvation. As we are taught and as we study the law of God as Jesus commanded, we internalize its truths. And the Holy Spirit reminds us of those truths so that we might rightly proclaim his character. The prophet Isaiah said, this is how the Holy Spirit would lead us. This is Isaiah 30, 21. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right, or when you turn to the left. Dear church, I hear this all the time out of context. I see it on Facebook, or not when I was on Facebook. I saw it on Facebook a lot, right? This is not, I repeat, not the Holy Spirit acting as a magic eight ball 
telling us which street to turn down or which person to date or which vacation to go on. What this is speaking of is the Holy Spirit telling us how to walk in the way of Jesus. He is not a paranormal, disembodied Casper the ghost helping us to lead the most comfortable, joy-filled life. What he is there for is to convict us of sin and righteousness, to comfort us when life is hard because the world is against us as followers of Christ. And the way that he tells us to go in is the way that rightly reflects Yahweh. And so this morning, the Holy Spirit is calling us to the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not to toss out the law, but to look at the core of what it is teaching us. And Jesus himself is the best teacher. So look with me at Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll connect the dots here. Take a look at Matthew 5.17. This is Jesus acting, excuse me, This is Jesus acting as the better Moses on the mountain, bringing the law of God to God's people. That's why we call it the Sermon on the Mount. Look at what he says in 5.17. Jesus' words, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. How about my friend's pastor who told his church, we don't care about the Old Testament, it's all legalism. Get rid of it. That's not a great place to be. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees and scribes were those charged with helping the people keep the law. But rather than understanding its heart, they simply applied the rules at a surface level. For example, they were very firm in keeping the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill, right? Thou shalt not murder, for example. So the righteousness of the Pharisees was, don't commit murder. As long as you don't do that, you're good. But Jesus interprets even this law for us. Take a look at verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Is Jesus making up new laws? No, in fact, he's actually reading it in the appropriate way. He pulls this law not out of thin air, but out of Deuteronomy 19. Notice what Deuteronomy 19 from our reading today says in verse 11. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him and attacks him and strikes him fatally so that he dies and he flees, he's going to be guilty. 
Jesus rightly picks out that it's not the act of committing murder that's the problem. It's the heart underneath it that speaks towards the hatred that initiated the murder in the first place. Murder is not the issue. The hatred that backs the premeditation is. When we have hatred or bitterness in our hearts, when we have unresolved conflict with our brothers or sisters, which includes our spouses, within God's people, we have broken the just and righteous heart of God as well as our own witness that we are a people set apart. This is where the sin begins. Not in the actual committing of murder, in the attitude we have towards our brother and sister. Likewise, look with me at Matthew 5.38. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's quoting the end of our section of text from today, from Deuteronomy. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus quotes from our section of text this morning trying to help us. And you see the law of retaliation. It's called in the Latin lex talionis, the law of retaliation, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It was instituted in the people of God not as a way to gain vengeance, but as something that was supposed to reduce vengeance. It was supposed to fight against the culture of vengeance of the day. No, you can't say uh, entire body for a knocked out tooth. It was to reduce the vengeance. It was actually a merciful law. And it was placed there to make God's people set apart. It was supposed to remove vengeance that did not fit the crime. And Jesus is reinstituting the heart of the law. Because by this point in time, what had happened was this was used as a way for people to exact vengeance. Ooh, I have the right of tooth for tooth. I'm going to knock your tooth out, even if it was an accident. And the Pharisees were doing this. You see this in various parts in the gospel. Oh, she committed adultery. Let's stone her to death. Yes, we have the right because the law tells us. And it was used as a way to hate brother and sister, to exact vengeance. And Jesus comes and says, guys, that wasn't the heart behind the law. That wasn't the point. The point of this is that God's people always strive for reconciliation, no matter if it means that taking the road to reconciliation might result in us getting attacked again. Let me give you a very practical example. You and your spouse are having a fight. Or maybe you and your friend are having a fight. And so you know what you're supposed to do and you go to them in vulnerability and you say, that statement that you made, it hurt me really bad. And you open up your heart to this person and what is usually the human defense? The human defense is to strike back in that moment. And so your spouse or your friend, they say yet a second thing that metaphorically slaps you across the face. And so you learn over time, no, no, no. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not going to be vulnerable anymore. I've been hurt far too many times. And so you stop being vulnerable. You stop going to them and turn the other cheek because your self-protectiveness is a higher value than speaking and proclaiming the Word of God through your actions in the way you live your life. Does that strike home for anyone? It should for every person in this room because it's how we all act. This is largely why the Church of Christ has lost its witness. is because in the most simple things, we do not follow the law of righteousness and justice. We don't follow Jesus. 
What all of these are based on is the heart of God for His people that comes not from the New Testament, but from the Old. Look at Leviticus 19.17. This is where Jesus takes a Cliff Notes version and says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But look at the whole text in Leviticus 19.17-18. You shall not hate your brother, and that means sister or brother, meaning a sister or brother in God's people. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And if we went the next 40 years trying to learn and memorize and internalize just those two verses, do you think we'd have a better witness among the world? Do you think conflict would be lessened in the church? It probably wouldn't go away, but it would be resolved a whole lot faster. How many of us as spouses or if as, as people that are friends, how many of us are still bearing grudges? And we think we've forgiven and forgotten, but guys, the human heart can't forgive and forget. It can only move towards reconciliation or distance. Those are the only two options for the human heart. Forgive and forget does not exist. It is one of the worst statements that's come out of the Christian church. We either reconcile or we distance. That's why the church has the same divorce rate as the world, and because of it, we've lost our witness. What Jesus was saying is, God's true people are those that will not just follow the letter of the law at the surface, but they will have their hearts transformed by God's word to act within his character, even if it hurts, even if they get slapped across the face for it. God's people are those that care for righteousness and justice to be done, and we care about those that are oppressed and those that are hurting. And so as I said earlier, we care for those who have made mistakes and show repentance. We purge those who are unrepentant and prideful around sin from our midst. And all of this is to protect the gospel witness of God's people within the church. Because this, collectively and individually, is our mission. We can go around telling people about Jesus as much as we want. But dear church, if at our core we are not the people of God, obedient to the way he has called us to walk, we have no witness and we have failed before we even begin. You see, one of the reasons I don't preach and teach and have a class on evangelism is because I'm fearful that we'll go out and we'll draw a bunch of people with this really cool looking Jesus who has a purpose and a plan for your life. And then they'll come here and they'll see that we are nothing different than the world. The way we handle conflict is the same that the world does and gossip, and triangulation, and division. Marriages are no better than in the world. Friendships are no better than in the world. And I refuse, as one of the leaders of this church, to allow us to be that false witness. Because when that person comes in and sees that lack of following God in righteousness and justice, that witness is not only ruined for that person with our church, but possibly with every church. See, we have been chosen for the purpose of collectively proclaiming the character of God through our relationships and lifestyles to a world that needs him so badly. That doesn't mean we stop evangelizing in the tract fashion where we give the three-minute gospel. What it does mean is that we better be ready that when we do that, we can draw them into the people of God that will show who Jesus is. And so we need to be the people that fight for the innocent in this world. Yes, we need to fight for the innocent babies that are aborted, the wrongly accused that are in prison, the oppressed and the martyred. We need to be a refuge for those that have made mistakes. But dear church, the application that I think most hits home for us this morning that many of us are going to be active in 
in our day-to-day -day lives is the idea of conflict within basic relationships. Many of us in this room will have little interaction with these bigger issues other than who we vote for or maybe signing a petition or two. But what most of us can apply is in the area of sin and conflict within our personal relationships. One of the most destructive habits in the church is the habit of how we deal with conflict. Turn with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. I've only got a few more minutes here. I know I'm going a little bit long today, but this is important stuff. Look at Matthew 18, verse 15. We read this the other day, uh, but I'm going to read it again. This is dealing with what's popularly called church discipline. But in actuality, it's just simply how Christians act out righteousness and justice in their everyday relationships. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And notice, you could substitute she and sister in there as well, right? This isn't just men. This is about anyone in the church. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Where do you think this comes from, guys? Anybody? Deuteronomy 19. Yep. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the congregation. Where do you think that comes from? Deuteronomy. Let him be to you. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the congregation, the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You see, when we take this out of context and use it for, you know, well, Jesus is here, right? As I've talked about before, we're not only taking it out of context of Matthew, we're destroying its context in Deuteronomy as well. It's important to read the Bible in context. This is Jesus' teaching on how to deal with personal conflict in the church. And notice that he is pulling very heavily from our section on witnesses in Deuteronomy. Jesus didn't make this up. He didn't make up a new law. He's schooling and teaching and training his disciples on how to be the true Israel of God, the true covenant people of God, rightly and truly enacting his law amongst themselves so that they can proclaim that they are a people set apart. But what we often do in conflict out of self-protection and pride is either withdraw and slowly erode covenant relationship or we triangulate. I don't know if you've heard of this before. It's a psychological term, but it's called relational triangulation. And do you guys, uh, if you don't know what this means, this is when two people are in conflict, and rather than going to each other and working it out with each other as they're commanded to by God's word, they bring in a third person. And they try to ally with that person. And so the person who believes that they're right will try to align with this third person to prove their point, to get the second witness on their behalf, so that that person can also be in conflict with the first person. I'm sad to say I see this all the time in this small body. People come to me, so-and-so did this, and so-and-so did that, and I'm mad at them. What do you think my first question always is 100% of the time? Have you talked to them yet? Well, no, 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 no. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Guys, this is the disobedience that we must get rid of in this church. 
we can't do this because what it does is it causes schisms and division and brokenness in the midst of the family. This is much like when divorced parents talk badly about one another to their child, trying to draw their child to their side. And many of you know what that's like because you were that child and you hated it. We take our individual hurt and make it the ruling law and then draw others into it. And so conflict sits like a cancer in the midst of the body because we are unable to obey the laws God has established amongst His people to make our witness strong. Now you might be asking, Hans, is there a ton of conflict in this church? No, honestly, there's the same conflict there is at pretty much every other church. There's just about a half a dozen or probably a dozen marriages in this church where the couples are unwilling to deal with the bitterness in their marriage. There's probably a half a dozen or a dozen friendships where the friends are just too busy to sit down and reconcile and deal with their stuff because their schedules don't allow it. And the reality is, is we have no witness as a church until you, the congregation of this church, get down to business in your relationships and deal with the conflict. That's it. That's the reality of what it is to be God's people. Don't wait another week. Don't wait, wait three weeks. Don't wait for the proper time where it's comfortable because it never will be. It is time to deal with the conflict. Dear brothers and sisters, how we deal with conflict and relationships when they are difficult or uncomfortable is core to our ability to proclaim that we are God's people with a message about God's kingdom. It is in the midst of working through this conflict that we are sanctified and our proclamation of God's glory becomes amazing because the world won't do what Jesus is calling us to do. Friends, I know that it is easier and more comfortable to just ignore conflict or pretend that it is possible to shove it under the rug or to forgive and forget, but it never works that way. If you have bitterness towards a brother or sister in here that may even be your own spouse, or maybe it's somebody in your discipleship group or your home community, then you need to enter into Matthew 18 and obey the king that you say you serve. Otherwise, going to the table of communion is a worthless event. And guess what? When you are vulnerable with that person that you have been hurt by or you let them know that they are being a jerk, they probably will metaphorically smack you in the other cheek. But what matters is your commitment to the way of Christ, the way of reconciliation and justice and righteousness. And this will help you endure and wait patiently as the image of God portraying His heart that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What it will also do is it will also call us to remove false accusations and mischaracterizations of one another. We as Christians must stop becoming the people that make others evil just because they've hurt our feelings. And when multiple people come to you and tell you the same thing, you must be willing to hear it rather than fight back against the congregation. Reality is to do these basic things is to be obedient to Jesus Christ. We're not going to be establishing cities of refuge or worrying about where our fence line is. But we absolutely need to worry about how we interact in relationships and whether or not we're mischaracterizing one another in the way we talk about each other in the midst of our relationships. Amen? Today I want to call you to two practical applications. 
And I know that I sound like a broken record, but that's okay. First, stop ignoring the Old Testament. I know I sound like I'm repeating myself over and over again, but guys, I think I need to because I know many of you in this room avoid the Old Testament as if it is a leper. If you feel as though you can't read through it because it's too confusing, follow along with us and restudy what you learned today throughout the week. Just know Deuteronomy and you will be farther ahead than 90% of so-called Christians. Stop ignoring the Old Testament. Secondly, really, truly, aim to work through conflict with those you call brother or sister. Like I said, I know of probably a dozen or two dozen relationships, whether they be marriages or friendships, minimally in this congregation of 250 people that need to commit to this process. And I know of half a dozen, uh, or sorry, uh, I know of half a dozen um, uh, situations where people know that they need to deal with the conflict and yet are putting it off for a better time. If we are serious about our gospel witness we must be serious about committing to obedience to the law of Christ. We must be people that look through the lens of Jesus Christ, teaching us about Deuteronomy, and we must act on it. And so this morning, in this heavy word, that is hugely convicting to every single one of us. I pray that the church would have ears to hear what the Spirit has spoken to us through the word of God. Amen? Amen. Worship team, why don't you come on up? And we'll pray.